<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the drop at DFT. I remain your humble host, Nancy Jundy, COO and CFO of Digital Film Tree. Joining me today for the drop on film restoration, restoration in general, all of the ways in which we touch media that you might either have forgotten existed or didn't know that you could make look even better. Uh, joining me today is our CTO and colorist and online editor, Scott Bradbury. Hello. Our post engineer. There's so many different titles I feel like I could give to you, but also <laughs> our senior archivist, film scanning restoration guru, Greg Filkins. And Henry Santos, you know and love. This Hello, is guys. not his first rodeo mm -hmm. here on The Drop. Senior colorist and AI upscaling restoration extraordinaire. <laughs> uh, in addition to, we have to tip our hat to Thomas Galleon, uh, co-CTO and senior colorist here at Digital Film Tree. We wouldn't let him be on two mm -hmm. seasons or two episodes in the same season, but... For those at home, we're going to get a photo of him behind the camera today because he had to be a part of this one. Welcome back to the Drop at DFT. Gentlemen, where shall we begin? This is a pretty broad topic that we even met beforehand to try and figure out how do you fit this into a one-hour episode. So just to lay kind of some, some knowledge down for the folks at home. Things that you may not have known that Digital Film Tree does or has. A 35mm film scanner is sitting in Greg Filkins' office, along with, is it two or is it now three film scanners that you have built yourself? I'm working on a third, but currently there's two. One is 8mm and one is 16 Wah, wah, wee, wah. Okay. <laughs> and then I am not the person to introduce you to things fancy things like AI upscaling and our HDR Express and our uh, D-Noise and D-Halo and all these things. Henry, what did you do for prints, for shiny, happy people, for like everything? Basically just did digital en enhancement on imagery that, that looked horrible, that honestly came from uh, possibly sources from like the internet and some tape stuff, some stuff that was actually like scanned from film. It was all analog and we bumped it up to high definition or HDR. Also some some video that was analog and we bumped that up to the latest and greatest HDR. So it, it's a bunch of little tricks that we do under the hood. Fun fact, a lot of folks never had the opportunity to find out Prince used to like opening his concerts in the dark extremely dark and he yeah. filmed it like that and he would, would film it <laughs> yeah it would show up he would basically come on and you would see nothing but for us that that resolution looks very noisy so we have to clean it up make it look good so when the show starts it's already pristine but this isn't just about film scanning or old digi betas and one inch tapes scott we also have we we have been working with Hulu even to, mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend like I can walk people at home through that workflow. What is that about? Well, whatever source you're coming from, whether it's like film or old video formats or even stuff that's just finished in like SDR or high definition, 
uh, modern productions these days and the way people look at stuff is all 4K, HDR, if they have displays that can support it. And for shows that are finishing that way or content that you want to deliver that way, we have lots of different ways that we can take all these variety of different sources and bring them together so that they all play nice kind of in the same world. So mm -hmm. whether it's new stuff or old archival video or film, there's lots of different pipelines we have that can integrate everything. So is that, if I am downloading a film that I just bought and it says we will adjust the delivery to your screen for what your internet can handle. That's what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Frequently uh, that happens through a process called Dolby Vision, where, you know, if you have a new 4K TV and you're streaming something, you can look at it in HDR where it'll be like incredibly bright, but a lot of people don't have that. So they still want to access the content on their old TVs or maybe your laptop or your phone. And so Dolby Vision takes that like pristine HDR image and it tailors it to the end viewer and kind of senses what they're looking at it on and makes it so that it appears correct and everyone gets a good experience. So this is the group to ask, did we ever get into fisticuffs over like the ACES workflow versus the Dolby Vision workflow? It, it's so controversial, like in our <laughs> world, right? This so, is the season yeah, where we talk yeah. taboos. Basically, there's so many workflows and, and they, there's some that are like, supposedly they're easy for us to work with it sometimes throws in a wrench and it makes it very complicated. So we still kind of go back to our traditional uh, post ethics that we just kind of keep it simple. And when we know how to manipulate image, then we'll just use a specific tool even within Resolve just to just keep it all streamlined. Mm -hmm. But but ACES is, it, it, you know, it was it was something that came out that was going to facilitate imagery to come out in a standard platform and so then when we would see it and finish it it would make it easier for us yeah. you bring up a really good point though we are agnostic like it's what serves the actual filmmaker artist storyteller it's what serves the project because we'll even bring that to somebody's plate like what is what is it what's your end goal what are your deliverables is this for a festival etc so it's you know, could it be Dolby Vision? Could it be Aces? Like, whatever you need, we will accommodate. We ourselves, we prefer Resolve, right? Yeah. But we have plenty of shows that prefer Avid, that prefer any number of things for whether it's online, color, etc. We ourselves, we're going to pick Resolve. But I think you were kind of in the middle of an important point there. I, I think at the end of the day, like, we, we just try to work with the client, the studio delivery. Because when we try to deliver something for a, a client, they're, they're going to bring us whatever source. But we need to figure out a way to streamline that, that timeline. So when we deliver that, that actual export, mm -hmm. it's going to have, like Scott said, it might need Dolby. Because at the end of the day, whatever platform the clients or, or the audience watch their, their content, it's going to have a variety of, of resolutions. So it depends on also their technology at home. But we, we create one master, that master has a, an abundance of flavor of, of, of material, and we just got to make it look good it, for the current time of, of the beautiful HDR. What does that or, mean that it has a, an abundance of content? Uh, it? it could be like basically uh, 35 or 16 or even 8 millimeter footage that was analog, or like, for instance, the Prince projects, <laughs> right? Like they, some of those were one inch video. So we literally took that to a facility that had the reel-to-reel -reel, and we transferred it two times because the first time wasn't right. And 
as it comes back we just have to process it make it look good for that at that one thomas worked on right so then he basically had a, a, a pristine higher quality to work with because mm -hmm. our mat right our, our our canvas is always clean it's what we make with it to, i mean to... everybody worked on, on yeah, 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 here. yeah everybody and, did here yeah. i mean that was in even Correct me if I'm wrong, but Shiny Happy People also had a quite quite a few number of sources as well. Oh, that's another one too, and that one it's it's crazy because we basically got footage from the internet, so mm -hmm. it was whatever was on YouTube, and, and then also analog video formats, and digital analog. video formats, yeah. uh, HD broadcast stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I completely forgot? Hmm. We did this for Cruel Summer too. We did, that's and that right. was actually I was going to bring it up. So Cruel Summer was a project that was shot recently it's a narrative show and it on a, Hulu this year yeah, yeah. good show about a bunch of teenagers in the 90s and the producers wanted to have as part of the story that they're running around shooting their parties hanging out one of them's got their little you know family home video camera so instead of shooting with like a modern camera and trying to fake the look they actually went out and purchased a whole an old like high eight <laughs> Sony home video camera and that's an old tiny cassette analog video format and it looks like tv did in the 90s if you were sitting at home and filming your family so they shot this along with their high-end digital 4k cine cameras and they brought it to us and we came up with a pipeline where as part of the processing with everything they shot that day we could take these and up res them to hd resolution and then upscale it further to 4k so it would intercut well with their modern cameras and it still retained that like soft, fuzzy, analog look. But we brought it into the pipeline where for their editors and their finish and going all the way through to making you know, a 4K HDR product that you can distribute worldwide and any across streaming platforms, um, a really like consistent pipeline, but still retaining like that old archival feel. Yeah. So, so I, that's something we didn't actually, we received the footage from production, we ingested it, and we're able to, to carry on with that. Mm -hmm. Question that I feel like anybody listening or watching though, what's it like touching film from Prince's vault? <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, that's nerve wracking. You are touching a one of a kind master that is Prince. Uh, so it's a very high profile media that you just need to preserve in its purest form and you don't want to alter it in any way by you know touching it or or just you need to be as hands-off as possible yeah well really quick though film. like what's interesting to me is like that's all film yeah. i mean especially yeah. like film period exactly. it was one of a kind this is different because it is Prince. Yeah, yeah. But there was a, a show left to be unnamed because they decided not to do that. But we actually had a TV show, a hit TV show, contact us about wanting to film on film again. A TV show yeah. mm -hmm. wanting to film on film because it was, you know, taking place in the 70s and they wanted that actual quality look of, of the film. They opted not to because it turns out it's it's really expensive. But even that, like that would be an entire day's worth of production. Like the all the money would be gone if that film, if anything happened to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, we don't have prints to go back and be like, sorry, P, we gotta do another take of that concert. 
uh, where you could with the show. But yeah, and in some cases, this is really like, you were looking at things that were really dark. You were looking at a, a lot of film dust, if mm -hmm. you will. You were looking at right. so many different things. Like, where did you even begin with that? Leslie, I mean, you don't know where the film has been or what's been done to it in the past. So you're, you're keeping an eye out for any sort of weirdness. And uh, typically, I would take notes to... Uh, alert someone if I saw something that was unusual if I saw something that might be brought up in the future like why is there no picture on this whole reel of film like I want to let somebody know that there's an unexposed reel here or you know there's previous damage from an earlier scan you know those th kind of things will come up and and you need to notify someone so that it's not a complete surprise at the end of the production that you know, there's a real missing or, you know, some sort of damage. I treat it all like it's my own. But you're even also like putting these together and spooling them because can you kind of take us through that pro I mean, you're 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 of a dying breed here, sir, mm -hmm. with actual film scanners, historians and, and you're what, fourth generation? Second generation. Second generation. I uh but it goes back, uh, you know, his footage went back to the early 50s. Mm -hmm. and But so, so when you actually go through that, like, you, because the camera itself, like, you're scanning to turn into digital files, but the reels themselves only go so far. So you'll right. even get, I remember there's one client <laughs> just kind of handed us a bag of film strips that you then had yes. to clean string together that's, so that you actually could scan them. That's not entirely unusual. Sometimes people only have a bag of film and <laughs> uh, uh, that's what you have to work with. And uh, that, sometimes that's really exciting because you don't, you have no idea why did somebody throw all this film in a bag? <laughs> and you don't and even what is the it? answer yeah. at the end because, of that either. Because, uh, you know, my father did a, a good share of that on his collection and I always felt like there was going to be some jewel in there. There, you know, on the cutting room floor, essentially, is what bags of film are. Mm -hmm. And no doubt, there are always some gems that you find. There's something in there that becomes incredibly important that you mm -hmm. had no idea until you just started splicing it all together. And it's, it's, it's like a great mystery. And and one of the real rewarding things is to see what it was that was almost completely disposed of. Uh, now, will there be damage with a bag of film? Yes, because it's been all just sort of crumpled up in a bag. There'll be bent film, there'll be scratched film, there'll be film with old splices on it. It's usually something somebody cut up and for some reason thought they needed to save it, but for some reason didn't think it was important enough to put it back on a reel. Yeah. Uh, but that's, it's a lot of fun. I think that's the most interesting film sometimes is the stuff that's in a bag. I found a bag of recording tape that wasn't on a reel. It was... Like quarter record, inch? Yeah, quarter inch reel to reel tape is much more flimsy and turns into a big tangled mess. Yeah, yeah. And the bag, what it was like an old paper lunch bag all crumpled up and so it wasn't labeled and I had no idea what it was. 
but you can splice and it then and I like spent yeah. the time to untangle it that's crazy and put it on a tape recorder mm -hmm. and it turned out to be a lost scene of my father's d-day oh film my God. Oh, where awesome. he's talking about his own experience on the beach and talking over film clips that mm -hmm. i hadn't found yet either where he's wow. like this is me in 1964 and like so it, it uncovered a whole very critical scene of a film then for some reason he threw it in a bag <laughs> and hadn't used it for whatever reason but like it was unbelievable when yeah. i heard that like oh my god like i couldn't believe what i found and the same thing goes with the picture for that same scene where he was talking over you found in like news that footage? was in a bag of as well film wow. that i had to splice all together and play it to discover that that scene was even in there i had yeah. no idea mm -hmm. that that was even part of his film because yeah. i think i was too young to remember that version of the film so he recut this d-day film every year to go back to his veteran buddies that landed on the beach with him to watch this film every june 6th anniversary and he would recut it and retool it every year and you know show it to his buddies and for some reason he cut this out i don't know why but i think i think those bags also were something where like you know how like still photography you would shoot 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 mm -hmm. and then at the end of the day you you just end up with all this film even if film is handled totally professionally and it's fresh out of the lab there's still all sorts of things that can go wrong with it you can get like little tiny hairs mm -hmm. on the edge of the image trapped in the mechanism you can get dust on it you can get scratches where like something digs through the emulsion of the film you can get chemical stains where like the chemistry goes wrong and there's weird spotty stuff all over it you can mm -hmm. get light leaks and flicker where like it's getting brighter and darker and pulsing and there's all sorts of digital tools we have that after we scan it we can go through and address all of those and clean it all up so it all looks perfect so obviously with archival and restoration stuff there's a question of like do you want to leave in that patina of stuff that really lets you know like you're looking at old film that's been like had a long travel and journey through history or if it's something new and you want that look of film but you want to incorporate it in a new project and have it look beautiful and really like highlight the actors and the cinematography you can go through and clean up all those tiny little things and we have all sorts of tools using both like AI and hand digital restoration that can go through and address all those and in severe cases you bring in VFX when you're like hey a third of my image has been stepped on I need to recreate this People can paint all that out and fix it. You know, that's actually a really good point. Um, we we were fortunate enough to hear from another estate, a uh, fairly big one. Um, girl was just my lover, but I'm not the one of that kind of caliber. And we needed to stabilize a shot because we didn't actually, uh, in, in one of the sections, you can see where it was just, it was a blur because of the way that it had been captured. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to, to stabilize that in VFX, uh, also in VFX. Fun fact for those who don't know, I think I've already dropped this on a previous drop. Uh, anytime you watch a Bill Lawrence show, you see Dylan Shadinsky's hand writing mm. Doozer. And he also is the one that got to trace over Prince's opening writing on Prince and the Revolution, the Blu-ray that we did last year. But also on the Prince stuff where we stabilize shots. I think Thomas mentioned 
Yeah, basically, there there was a few roles where like it was handheld. Mm-hmm. So so that stuff, uh, because of our DaVinci Resolve application, it has this amazing stabilization uh, part of it. So we just took that part, stabilized it, it looked solid. So then now, for the viewer, the audience, when you guys watch it, you guys are not going to see all the the craziness yeah. off roading or, <laughs> but it, it looked great. So that those are all processes that we look into. Sometimes we do it and it looks too clean. We have to mm-hmm. back off. We got to give it that little bit of that edge so it still looks kind of a uh, um, live action uh, as much as possible. How much do you guys ever like? I, I know you're uh, far more than a hobbyist, but even you still go around with your own eight millimeter camera. Yeah. And I know you enjoy all sorts of, of, you know, brain exploring, like from telescopes to books and things like that. Like, do you ever pick up a camera and still do things like that? Well, I do have an old clockwork 16 millimeter, millimeter Bolex camera that's sitting in the closet that I used to shoot with. And that was a fun toy. But I actually have like a small collection of old film cameras, yeah. uh, you know, old reflex ones and the ones you look down through the top and things like that. <laughs> and camera technology is fascinating. And then yeah. also digital cameras. Like, you know, occasionally I'll take like a little hand DSLR and stick it on a tripod and stick it up at the night sky and let it just like expose for 30 seconds and take pictures of stars and constellations. Did you and Emilio do that on the last camping trip? <laughs> we, we do some of it. I, I, I used to do it a lot. Um, and, and it's so funny because right before all these like latest and greatest cameras, there was one that just came out. And I only bought it just because it was tiny. And it was the first original Blackmagic pocket, pocket camera. And that thing was neat just because it was so small. A little bit bigger than a cell phone. And mm-hmm. I would just shoot a little bit of video. Um but that and just stills on my cell phone, that's pretty much it. Well, so what are the biggest differences between all of the sources that we've talked about? Because now we've talked about how you capture it, how you clean it up, how you fix it. Let's take us into color because even even you do color then after mm-hmm. you're, you've scanned. So talk to me about, you know, this is take Ted Lasso, for example, all these beautiful freaking people yeah. that were, then were still coloring and, you know, tweaking the light and this, that, and the other thing. It was captured great. You're capturing beautiful people, blah, 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 blah. But what we're talking about today is how you take all this different media, because then also on shiny, happy people on Lizzo, all of that, you know, that's modern media that was captured. Sure. It can be a handheld. It can be try all of that. But when, when you're dealing with different types of media, shot on different types of camera, shot in different kinds of lighting, all of that. Eras, yeah. Like, how do you even, what are the nuances and the differences between working with that kind of different I think it's based on the project and also the clientele. So like if the project is gonna keep a stylized look, like you said that one film one was going to, then all the media has to have a kind of like that treatment. So there was a project that we did here, the Flying Dutchman. Mm. That was all canon, but the guy wanted like this film kind of 16 millimeter, eight millimeter mm-hmm. kind of style. So I had to do a little re- research and then treat it. And and I remember my nodes on that project was a bit crazy. I could have done it with less stuff, but I still achieved a look mm-hmm. and I remember that having GoPro, uh, Canon, and there's one third camera. But uh, treating all that footage just so it has that look, that's part of like 
the enjoyment of color correction and then watching people's face when they watch it right and they watch it on the big screen that's like wow like it looks good um but it, every media has the same kind of a approach it's just how much we actually push it to get to that level and it'll break up sometimes it'll break up and it looks very pixelated and so we have to back it off and then and then give it some ai treatment you know and and sometimes it works and sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't what does that mean for the ai treatment like are we training it to look for certain things or are we like There's one actually... scene at a time kind of like vfx well, for the stuff we're doing in VFX with Copycat, where we're training our own models, is built to purpose because AI training takes like a lot of computation and a lot of time and a lot of sources. But uh, there's tools that have been developed. A lot of them are built into Resolve, which we use. And then there's also other tools for upscaling where people have done a lot of the work, where they've gone like, OK, we're going to take a bunch of low-res images and use AI to upscale it and train the AI model to get the best possible sharpness out of the upscaled image. So we have a bunch of different tools where we take AI models, AI models that have been trained by other people and we can run things through them to say, upscale from HD to 4K or from old standard def to 4K. And then there's also like AI interlacing. A lot of times you'll get stuff and this is kind of in the weeds of analog video, but it used to be that like every other line That's would be right. shot out of sequence in analog video and they would all get put together on your TV tube and it would look like smooth motion. But when you actually look at it, everything's stepped and kind of like, you know, interlocked forks. And when you just transfer that to the modern digital formats, you end up with all these like horizontal lines bisecting everything. And so there's great tools in Resolve where there's a good AI model that goes through and intelligently deinterlaces and takes all that and gets rid of all those little squiggly horizontal lines and makes it so it's smooth and so motion looks right. Yeah. And so we do a lot of that. Like if something is from an old 30 frame source, what's the best way to take that and move it into a 24 frame world, which is how most content gets made and delivered these days. And sometimes it's using an AI approach. Sometimes it's using visual effect time warps. Sometimes it's using time warp effects inside Resolve. And there's a, a bunch of different tools, some using AI, some using other techniques, and we just kind of decide based on what the source is, how we can get it to look best. And I think something interesting that like you were talking about, about how you have to take all these different sources and in color kind of find a middle ground that works best and then also represents creatively what they're trying to do. I, I kind of wanted to talk about that because Shiny Happy People mm -hmm. is very far apart from yeah. like and, you have this old like you were saying like the tube television stuff that is just yeah it's so pixelated coming into these fresh mm -hmm. clean set up sitting on a couch like hd images that's right yeah. with with modern cameras yeah. and then yeah. and then some of the footage that they brought in was vhs mm -hmm. uh the downloads from youtube Man. and it, it it oh my god what was funny is that on one of those when i saw it, it the 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 resolution was uh was um a jpeg it was like mm -hmm. so low right but we had to bring it up to a huge aspect ratio in hdr so everything definitely looks like mm -hmm. a cobweb of just mm -hmm pixels a huge pixels and beyond, but, yeah. but the ai actually helped kind of recreate that it merges pixels and it kind of makes fake uh lines throughout so that everything looks sharp but mm -hmm. 
it's very it's 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 like you have to trick it and work with it and it's a whole bunch of back and forth it's not just a quick easy fix well i'm kind of i i I don't think we're allowed to talk about this project quite yet but like you've been working with um a lot of footage Mm -hmm. from a well-loved uh musical historical etc etc and there was one piece of footage that you even brought back to life where like you could see the leaves like mm-hmm. it had just felt very yeah sure they're outside and they're standing against like a wall of something but like you actually brought that out so i'm getting to the question which is how do you prepare the colorist then like you're already doing a lot of work to pull from the image what maybe mm-hmm. had not been captured before but this is still then going into color what's what's that kind of experience like your scans have just blown minds because they're so different from what they thought was possible. By the time it leaves your hands, people are actually seeing what they had hoped might mm-hmm. be there. I think it's because I grew up seeing it for what it was supposed to look like. The old Bolex was made in Switzerland and they made 16 millimeter and 8 millimeter cameras marketed for normal everyday people mm-hmm. to go and shoot home movies mm-hmm. and that was the only way you could actually capture images mm-hmm. back in the 40s and 50s yeah and actually the lenses were made in switzerland and crafted with extreme precision so the optics of the cameras uh, could bring out a lot of detail but me growing up with my father having used the Bolex exclusively, I saw what that camera could accomplish, even on an eight millimeter image, which is a tiny three and a half by four and a half millimeter sized image. Mm -hmm. So it's a tiny little picture. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that's changed through the decades has been the chemical formulation that Kodak used for the film itself Mm -hmm. and so you can tell through different generations of film more or less clarity based on the way the grain is actually put on the film Mm -hmm. so so i'm used to seeing this on a daily basis growing up and growing into my adult life seeing how film looks as it's projected on the wall Mm -hmm. Uh, no scanners just watching it through Mm -hmm. a projector which is sort of the purest way you can view a film. And so I'm used to seeing it that way. So when I built my scanners, I made sure that the optics were up to the task of capturing that same look that I'm used to seeing. And that's how basically I Humor me here because this is fascinating. So with the the different... And, and let's just say I know nothing about any of this. Let's talk to me like that. Because for the different lenses that you're talking about, the quality of film, did the quality of what it was captured on ever change? Because I yes. heard you talking about like even the chemical compounds that like then developed it. Right. That changed. So you're saying all of those things yeah, evolved. Like... And, and sometimes even what we saw in Shiny Happy People or... Any of these shows that were caught, captured back in the day, like the reason it looks maybe flat or muted is because of all those different variations. Right. But you're able with your scanners to capture something 
Right, I can capture it to the greatest detail possible. Now, there's going to be limitations based on the type of film that was used. Agfa versus Kodak, for instance. Agfa was not a superior film to Kodak. Kodak made the best film out there. But even different versions of Kodak film, depending on whether it was made in the late 70s or in the mid-50s had a different look. Even though it was still called Kodachrome and it was supposed to be the same film, it looks different through the years. And the same thing goes with, even on video, like via, you could, you could summarize, well, this was a VHS tape. However, uh, you know, VHS doesn't look bad. If, if somebody made a really good VHS tape of something on video, it could look great, but you know, keep in mind in the 80s and 90s that the camera technology that was out there was going through a whole evolutionary process. So VHS itself has a, a, a standard, a universal standard of specifications to, to look a certain way. However, the cameras and the sensors on the cameras that were used, like for shiny happy people, for instance, like those cameras could just have bad capture sensors on those, which could degrade the image. And so it could have looked better on VHS, but the cameras they used didn't look so good because of the cameras really were kind of crap in mm. the early 80s. And it wasn't until sort of the mid-90s that the, the quality really sort of exponentially hmm. increased the quality. So the format alone doesn't limit the quality of how a video looks. It's also the 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 amount of money that was spent on the camera mm -hmm. and how good did the camera perform recording it onto that format. Hmm. And, and Shiny Happy People, I think, for instance, you know, essentially was a church organization that... Uh, probably had a relatively low budget yeah. to record these <laughs> instructional videos that right. that yeah. then became uh, a focus of the whole live, series. Live streamed on cable vision, like uh, yeah. So you know they, they could it have looked better. Also lighting and how they yeah. set up the shots that all you know influences the quality hmm. of that the image. That actually kind That's... of takes me into where I wanted to go too with like. There's a huge difference between uh, Watch Out for the Big Girls, which is filmed on stages that, like during performances, outdoor light, indoor light, against a green yeah. screen, all these things, versus, say, like a shrinking or a home economics. And it's like, so the difference between unscripted and scripted and docu-series or documentary, like mm -hmm. how do you even, how do you even begin to unpack uh, let's focus on Watch Out for the Big Girls because that was all these different environments, all these different skin tones. Did they have different cameras too? They they, they had yeah they had newer uh, cameras that basically ran because it was kind of shot like a, like a, a live show and a, a lot of this uh, of these times they basically did not have actual people crew filming mm -hmm. like it was just kind of like their cameras that are set on platforms right. And then somebody in a control room is kind of recording certain ones. And then the, the actual camera heads would move, pan, zoom. Mm -hmm. um, but all those all those uh, standards, uh, at the end of the day, when they filmed that, it, they were actually 4K. 
So they also had kind of somewhat of a production uh, team come in and actually light stuff. So it already automatically looked beautiful. Like, like yeah. all, all of them looked amazing, you know? And so like on their interview scenes, oh my God, those look beautiful. Even though those were a little bit of VFX too. Shout out Dylan yeah. Shedinsky. Yeah. <laughs> Lizzo's hair against a green screen. Folks, don't ever put hair like this against a green screen. <laughs> Make it gray. Yeah. Thanks so much. So so basically, like it all at the end of the day, when it when it came together, it just looks beautiful. But it's it's lighting. Mm-hmm. You got to actually sit down and actually plan for lighting a actual scene. Uh, Whereas some live documentaries, right, they don't have the time, so they just kind of have to go and 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 just shoot it. And then at the end of the day, post-production is the one that cleans up making it look good, right? Yeah. But it really boils down to how a production will set up if they got the time, the budget, to really get a lighting kit, a lighting yeah. crew, um, where it'll look amazing. That I mean, that show, even their exterior stuff, they had amazing crews that came in there and set up all this stuff with beautiful lights and yeah. switches. And when the performances happened, oh my God, it just looked gorgeous. Um, and and all everybody that was in it just looked really good. So well, let me Scott, let me ask you this because you you and Thomas are just like these just mad scientists, and you look at all the information out there to bring forward the best possible, not just image but the best possible workflow for all of these collaborators to come together because there is no show that is like a one person hero. That really is the core of digital film tree. This is the biggest team sport that most anyone ever is going to play, bringing an artistic vision to life. And so with, you could literally pick any show that we work on, but we have nine different cameras sometimes, 10 different formats, like all of these different things. How do you walk into a project thinking about the end goal of this is what we know the client wants? Sometimes they don't, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're going to develop that as they're going along. That's why look setting is a thing. But how do you, again, with the idea that we're agnostic here, we're going to use the tools that get it done and get it done well, going into a challenging project where we won't name names, we won't name names, but let's say that you have nine cameras driving plates that were on a totally different mm-hmm. camera than anything else that we're going to use uh clearly the lead was they didn't get a good night's mm-hmm. sleep like all these different challenges and then all of a sudden we're going to throw an eight millimeter in there or we have um we've had plenty of shows where it like references live news footage like mm-hmm. let's just say that it's the biggest cauldron of all the things where do you even begin with putting together a workflow that's going to translate all the way from on set and how they're capturing through to reaching you in online? Because my favorite analogy for online, just give me post-its, give me crumpled up paper. There's some tin foil in there. <laughs> Put it all together. Put it all together. Well, I think the first most important step is actually listening to the clients and the creative people and figuring out how do you want this to look? Like, what's your end goal? Because I might look at a bunch of footage and think like, well, this is the way I think you could integrate all this. But people come to us with like stories they're already trying to tell and a vision in their head. And the producers are working with directors and the cinematographers, and they're a really good link to try and communicate like what everyone's creative vision is and figuring out how to get from point A to that final point B to deliver for them is the most important thing. So it's not so important how I think it should best be handled, but it's more listening to the creatives and what they're trying to do. 
And then when it's a matter of, okay, so we have some stuff that doesn't integrate well. And whether it's old overexposed analog footage or it's something that was shot on a modern camera but without enough lighting so it's got noise in it or things like that, you look at like, well, what's the best thing you have in the scene? And you look at like, what's the best quality? What's the best resolution? And let's try and bring everything up to that. And so if something's overexposed and the whites are clipped out, the colors can go in and go, you know, I'm going to soften that. I'm going to give it the type of roll off that the rest of the better cameras or the better shot stuff has. So it all integrates. So when it cuts back and forth, it all feels like part of the same story. So that you're part of like the same narrative, you're in the same space. So I think it's looking at the problems that exist and then finding out how do we integrate everything together so that it ends up having like the final result that the creatives are looking for. And that might be color correction, it might be visual effects, it might be digital restoration. It's really a question of like looking at what the problems are and finding solutions. Even even shooting the actual camera, sometimes they, that, that determines, oh, we're not going to go with a higher quality camera. We might mm -hmm. go with a lower, mm -hmm. right, like that show. So or like raw, should we shoot the, what is it? Okay, right, so everyone... raw. Yeah. 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 So, so raw is the, the highest potential capture that you can get on that device, that camera. So the, the, the reason why certain cameras can do that is because they are future-proofing the image coming out of that, that guy, right? So some cameras now can do up to 12K. Mm -hmm. Would we ever need that? Mm -hmm. Some people say yes, some people say no. <laughs> that, right? like, I heard that idol. Right. I heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously then there's people that say, oh, let's, let's film on film. Mm -hmm. We want that style. Um, it, it's all achievable. The look, right? It, it, or it's generic out of a physical camera, or it's kind of created by us yeah. in the post in the post world. Or it's a question of like not just resolution, but also how much light. Because there's That's the measurement true. of stops, mm -hmm. which is the doubling of how much light the yeah. film or the digital camera can actually like record. And so depending on the camera you have, you might have 13 stops, you might have 14 stops. Greg can speak to how mm -hmm. film had different ranges that it could capture. Especially on low level. Yeah, and low a lot light. of that comes down to like, oh, if a cinematographer is like, you know, I just want to make this look like it's lit by candlelight, you need to have a different dynamic range that you're capturing which then comes down to what camera you're going to use. Are you going to shoot raw versus some compressed format? Yeah. And there's also that considerations about what's the image you're trying to capture and then what technology can you use to do that and kind of work within those parameters. Yeah. And I think what's brilliant about how Greg is designed his film scanners is that they're designed so that they're camera agnostic, that what's doing the capture right now could be a 6K or an 8K camera, but when mm -hmm. better camera technology comes out, the same mechanism that handles and transports the film can have a new camera swapped in there so that the capture goes up to whatever the newest format is. Yeah, and I know there's been controversy over whether or not a higher K camera is really <laughs> necessary for a small gauge film like 8mm or 16mm. But the reality is it's it's just a glorified microscope. Yeah. And, you're, and you're, we're really talking about capturing the grain structure on the film as clearly as possible. It's just like when the James Webb telescope That's came right. out, you know, it, it sort of blew away some of what the Hubble was, <laughs> was able to do to look 100%. at stars and part mm -hmm. of our universe. And, and I look at film the same way as 
you know, James Webb looks at the universe. You want to see it in all of its beautiful detail. Yeah. And so if I can get a larger camera on there, you know, it doesn't matter what the K is to the viewer, but, but I want to be able to zoom in. Uh, and sometimes in post-production, when we're trying to create a finished look, maybe somebody just wants a part of that image and not the whole image. So mm -hmm. you're going to be zooming in on, on an image that's already incredibly small. Yeah. So, so you want that microscopic detail of the image. And, and that's what I mostly look for when I'm actually scanning is the, the grain detail. And the, the more pixels the camera has to grab that microscopic image, the more detail you're going to have when you zoom out and look at the whole image as a whole. And that's really where you get that complete accuracy of reproduction is is in the resolution so so i fully subscribe to 12k scanning you know moving forward because you're going to get more detail than you would with a 8k camera mm -hmm. it's really based upon the actual uh the intent for that project so, so it's kind of what i'm getting at where it's just it's interesting to me that Color feels very much like a right brain, left brain, constant struggle. Um, VFX is very similar where you're sitting there and it's technology now, which is yeah. like you're either coding it or you're learning the software to do it or, 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 or even, even colors that we've worked with that have been working for like, you know, 20, 30 years, right. they're still touching software. They don't particularly care to keep up with you know, some of them don't care to keep up with the updates and uh, you can can hear about some of that in the mats or no mats <laughs> drop. Um, but, you know, this is this is kind of what I was getting at with like the discerning of the workflow, mm -hmm. because for a facility, those things matter, which plugins and the LUTs and did we actually do dailies? Can we leverage GeoPost for things or do we have to wait for a turnover and, or do we have to wait for the other place to send us the LTOs and all that stuff? So like discerning that actual workflow, the technology behind how we're going to complete this project, the technology that's available. What's wild is at the end of the day, we're still just going back to caveman type stuff. That's and right. it's like, what do you want to see? What are you hoping that the eyeball takes in? Yeah. Well, I think there's no like real distinction between art and science. Like the technique in art is the use of technology. Like any media, whether it's like oil painting or cinematography or any making music, everything involves using some technology, using some set of tools to take the idea you have in your head and make that real. And so I think technique and technology go hand in hand. And I think it's a question of like figuring out the tools, how best to use them and kind of marrying that all together. And the beauty of it, honestly, is like we've been doing this. I've been doing it since the beginning of my career. It, we're constantly evolving. Film, his dad used to, your dad used to shoot on it, right? What's cool yeah. is that now technology has evolved. So there's, there's films that actually got mastered right in the 80s, 90s. That technology for scanning that negative was only limited to 5 to 5, just regular video. Mm -hmm. We didn't even have high definition. Now, mm -hmm. when you look at that machine to what he's actually invented now, mm -hmm. right, 
you get so much resolution out of films that like right now currently there's there's <laughs> there's restoration projects that are happening right yeah that, that literally we watched on a dvd or a vhs yeah but now when we get it on a blu-ray or hdr oh my god mm -hmm. it looks fantastic it's a different experience it is beautiful you actually want to see it in the big screen mm -hmm. i mean i i worked at a post house that went out of business uh, quite well they didn't go out of business but they sure did come close to bankrupt after they thought they got a really good deal on a north light scanner oh no <laughs> and it was like 2006 what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing right, and it's right. like the quality has changed the size has changed you have, yeah. you have three three film scanners in your office mm -hmm. at the time in 2006 it was bigger than it was like it took up a room right. like the whole room right. So it's just it's it's been wild to to be in a, a small section of history where it's changed so rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of which, for those who don't know at home, Henry was day one at Digital Film Tree. <laughs> Henry, what would you say has been like the biggest change for Digital Film Tree in this capacity since you've since I, you've been I, here? Yeah, for for Digital Film Tree, I, I feel like technology's been like the number one driven thing for this company. Uh, working with in, individuals at honestly bring this professionalism from the level of Rami says this granular right and he talks about film a lot mm -hmm. and I think the process of it on how it, it it has evolved the 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 ability to constantly be able to bump up imagery is just been our kind of driven force and then when we work with all like the collective of professionals, we've all seen like amazing facilities, mm -hmm. but sometimes those facilities do not upgrade mm -hmm. and they get stuck in a, in a, in a format that obviously it's, it's, it's booming, Yeah. but you have to kind of start molding to the newer technology. Yeah. Not to, not to, you know, play devil's advocate here because we've taken on some really challenging jobs. Um, but a TV show, had they decided to film the whole show on film. film, I don't know how we would have handled that. Oh, it would have been fun. <laughs> that, it would have been, been fun. It would have been so but My first job was right. picking up film from the lab at two in the morning yeah, and bring about... it to the telecines <laughs> so the dailies colors could transfer it totally. to digital video and put it in the pipeline so the editors could do it. And then scan it at HD and cut it and I finish it. I mean, I have great everyone here. Care, but I was still around in television. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, I mean, us, we are a company of less than 60 people. We have one film scanner. <laughs> Not we just have... one. I think all what? three. All three of them. Would you get on those? Oh, yeah. 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 We, we could definitely do it. Okay. Yeah. And, and then what's funny is that, like, only a, a particular person will, like, touch that like mm -hmm. there's people that are like oh hell no that's negative mm -hmm. i'm not touching that like mm -hmm. because they thought it was like some magical thing no because if you handle it wrong it can fall off the right documented <laughs> they raised their hands folks because that's kind of where i was going though is that like oh, we would have been we have done that, that. we want yeah. to do it we actually we fought for that we yeah. talked to the studio like we can do we will do this we will yeah. make it happen because similarly like we're out there fighting for some of these libraries like there are vaults 
of film that have mold growing on them. Yeah. Do you folks yeah. know that starts a clock? Yep. It looks like, like snowflakes. It's mm. terrifying, though. Like, there is so much media. There are so many wonderful bits of history that could very well just be lost because people are not mm. thinking about this. You have an entire an entire generation of, of people that have never, will never see, let alone touch film, very little people then will go forward working with film. And then on top of that, you have a section of people that are like, oh yeah, film, yeah, it's a it's a physical media. Yeah, we probably need to capture that before it disintegrates mm-hmm. or something like that. And then you have people that are like, the entire generation is probably like, well, nobody really cares. Who's yeah. going to care? I know. And so we're all kind of, those of us who care about these things are racing against a clock. And it's it's like, yeah, you know what? Fine. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. We will do it. Bring it to DFT. Like, we want to help and we want to get it in front of people. Because, you know, if we're, we're sitting in a moment where even Turner Classic Movies has a threat lobbied against it. It's like, right. we need to move faster. Otherwise, a lot of things that were captured that more people will be inspired by have forever you know i i make the jokes all the time that like stuff that i grew up with just even in the 80s are things that like a lot of people will never hear of i don't know how many times i've said capital critters and dc follies on this show (laughs) but like i want better quality scans of of those so that i can watch them again and again yeah the the truth is there's a lot of history being lost or it simply hasn't been uncovered that is important, I think, to our society as a whole. I think that forgetting about history is a, is a, is a horrible travesty that... It that makes you relive just, it! Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, like home movies, nobody would think much about, but the reality is, even for famous people, uh, there's probably an attic somewhere where there's a shoebox mm-hmm. full of films and and when you we had one of those dropped off here one time and we we're like oh you, my god when you uncover that kind of footage it's incredibly compelling and and moving history yeah and one of a kind that can really open the door to a whole story that hasn't been told yet and i think that's why i've been in love with it my whole life and another thing that that people don't really consider but all these video formats that we're using to restore you know vhs or hi8 or betamax or whatever it may be um there's a whole sort of technology there that you need to be able to maintain because manufacturers aren't creating these machines anymore Mm -hmm. so when you get this material it's very important that you have the knowledge to be able to maintain Mm -hmm. and keep that equipment functional to the best of its ability in order to gather that data back off of the the There's a reason we keep asking to hang out with the night crew, (laughs) teach them youngins, uh, most of whom are very interested in color in this, this very experience. And so... That's another humbling here at Digital Film Tree. This is not about just being the brainiacs at the table today. It's about making sure that a lot of this carries forward long and well into the future. Um, with that, gentlemen, any last final thoughts about, about carrying it into the future? Where we've been, where we're going? Just be bold. Don't be scared. 
technology is technology, but if you have a great idea, just put it on paper or put it on the canvas, right? And, and at the end of the day, if it's a visual representation of an amazing show, let, let's see it, you know? And, and that's, that's what I love to tell people, like, just go for it. Mm-hmm. So. I think for the general audience out there, you need to talk to your parents and your grandparents, and you need to go dig through the attic or That's the closets, and you need to ask them if they remember if they captured anything on a videotape or on a film, and and it's very important that you you dig in and and try to find out your history because a lot of times it just hasn't been mentioned or somebody forgets about it, but it's there, and and that history that could be there could be as simple as a birthday or as amazing as something that was a piece of American history or, or history anywhere in the world, because film was all over the world. So uh, I implore anyone to go out there and look for that footage, and and you'll discover just an endless trail of, of stories and history that, that you'll love. memories, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on another drop at DFT. We'll see you next time. See you guys.